Okay, so we're going to get started, guys. This is a Christian identity in an age of authenticity. Uh, it's not dinosaurs. So if, you're, if you wanted dinosaurs, you're in the wrong room. Still time to leave. Um, everyone should have a handout. Uh, Meryl's got extra back there. If you're walking in late, grab one. This is not everything I'm going to say. Uh, I've got more pages than you. Um, but this will help you uh, track track the logic and the thought flow of uh, the talk, the talk today. It's not a message, it's a talk. And uh, we're going to reason together. The Lord says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. So we want to reason together. We want to think critically about our cultural narratives. Uh, we're going to discuss what that is in a second. Uh, but we want to we critique the, the main cultural narrative we have today. And then we want to use the Bible to, uh, in a sense, reconstruct that. So it, it's not completely wrong. Actually, this cultural narrative we're going to talk about uh, was hijacked from uh, Christianity. Christianity brought in a new element to uh, classical civilization, which was the focus on the individual. Uh, before Christianity came in, uh, your worth and your identity was really derived from your tribe or your clan or your, your caste, uh, where you were born into society. That was really unchangeable. Um, when Christianity came along, um, all of a sudden people like slaves, people like um, uh, you know, different races, non-Roman citizens, all of a sudden uh, acquired uh, dignity and worth and value as individuals because they were loved and elected by a personal God. And so Christianity brought in this thought of the worth of the individual, post-Christian society stemming from the Enlightenment, um, hijacked that narrative or turned it into a narrative that talked about the sovereign self and what we're going to talk about today as the identity narrative. Okay, so you can see on your little outline here, I've got, this is the main cultural narrative today, the identity narrative. Okay, so this is Christian identity in an age of authenticity. And we're going to talk about what is identity? What is it? What does authenticity mean? What does that mean? Some of you guys may be very clued in on this. Maybe some of you guys aren't so clued in on that. Uh, but uh, hopefully by the end of today's uh, talk, we're really um, clear on what our culture's, what our main culture's story is and how, how should we think about this as Christians. So if, if you've ever jogged around Mopac, uh, if you ever jogged down, around, I mean, around um, Lake Austin, on the trail in Austin, uh, eventually you get down under Mopac Bridge and there's that little bridge going over the water that connects the two sides of the trail. And if you've ever been perceptive in your jog and you've stopped to look out west um, down the river, you might have noticed on one of those columns there's a big round sticker. Uh, used to be painted, but now it's a sticker. And it says, live a great story. Anybody in Austin ever seen that? Yeah, next time you go jog down the trail, uh, take a look west and you'll see it's right in the middle. It says, live a great story. Okay, this is tapping into the identity narrative. Live a great story. Living a great story requires one thing. Living a great story, okay, so if you're an English major, if you've studied literature, uh, yeah, back there, all right, uh, one of the central uh, components of a story is character. You have to have characters. You have to have a plot, a setting, characters. I just do those three because in plot is, you know, resolution and conflict and all that. Uh, so live a great story requires you to determine what character are you. So there's a sticker saying live a great story. 
And if you, if you, uh, there's nothing wrong with living a great story, obviously. We want to live the greatest story. But to live a great story, it, it puts on you the question, who am I? Which character am I? And once I def- define which character I am, once I discover what character I am, I can understand what story I fit into, okay? So we can't answer the question, what should I do, until we answer the question, which story am I a part of? Uh, so this is kind of, uh, we're setting up the identity narrative talk right here. <clears throat> and I'll just give you the punchline. Um, God has a story, and we're characters in it. We're going to develop this later. And Satan's strategy is to sell us, through culture, a different identity to hook us into a different story that will draw us out of God's story into another story that uh, we don't want to actually be a part of. Okay, so this is, this is the identity narrative. People live from the stories that shape their identities. People live from the stories. Our country has a story. Other countries have stories. You know, we've got George Washington crossing the Potomac. We've got the Revolutionary War. We've got, if you're Texas, we've got, you know, the Alamo. All of these stories combine to create an identity. We have a national identity. We have a cultural identity. We have a, maybe a racial identity. Um, and so those stories really define, really define us, right? And so um, this, is, this is the identity narrative, okay? And so basically in, in adolescence, you know, your, your guys' ages, your guys' age, one of the primary tasks is to form a mature and cohesive identity. So you guys are constructing, you guys are defining, developing, who am I? Who am I? Um, and what identity enables you to do is it enables you to move with purpose and direction in life. So if you understand who you are, all of a sudden, you've got purpose. You've got purpose. You've got fuel in your tank, uh, allowing you to drive down that quote, quote, road of life with direction. You know who you are, you know where you're going. And that identity allows you to maintain a sameness and a consistency throughout life, right? So there's a continuity, no matter where you go, no matter what changes happen in life, you know, you know who you are. So this is, this is how these, this identity narrative got hijacked. So post-Christian society, in an age of authenticity, has taken this narrative to mean we must discover our deepest desires. We must look inward into our heart and find whatever we feel most truly, whatever we feel most authentically, and then do everything we can to realize that, regardless of constraint or opposition. This is, this is the identity narrative. Look deep within, and whatever you find there, burning most intensely, that feeling, because you have it intensely, is automatically legitimated, and now you should be free from any sort of external constraint or opposition from family, from society, from peers, to authentically live that out, to, actu- to actualize it, to make it true. And the, uh, the age of authenticity to s- says, as long as you are authentic in doing that, you should be celebrated, you should be applauded, and no one dare step on those toes or uh, put up any sort of roadblocks to your actualizing those feelings. This is the age of authenticity. So as long as you feel it, it's true. As long as you feel it, it's legitimate. And of course, the greater you feel it, the age of authenticity says, the more, it, the more you have a, in a sense, responsibility to live it out, completely live it out, 
and no one should be able to constrain you. So right now in our culture, this is the highest virtue. It's not righteousness, it's not justice, certainly it's not holiness, a biblical virtue. It's authenticity, okay? It's authenticity. So people want to be true to themselves. And we see this, we see this uh, message everywhere in our culture right now, okay? I'll give you a few examples. At a 2009 commencement address, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, as part of her um, talk, said this. See if you can hear the identity narrative. My advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Okay, did y'all catch it? My advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. So this sort of thing is probably said every year uh, at, at graduation ceremonies, <coughs> commencement ceremonies. High School Musical 2. <laughs> High School Musical 2, all right, not 1. The answers are all inside me. All I've got to do is believe. So if you can sing that song, don't do it now. But all the answers are inside me. Ah, authenticity, identity narrative. All I've got to do is believe. I've got to unlock my deepest desires, my most passionate dreams, and everything's going to be great. Of course, the biz- biggest example I've got today is the movie Moana, okay? The Disney movie Moana. Disney basically is a machine feeding on this uh, narrative, just changing cultures, changing races, changing, you know, uh, hero girls, uh, princesses, and it's just pretty much the same story over and over and over, and everyone always loves it. Okay, Moana is an identity narrative through and through, okay? So the moral of the story is be true to who you really are. This message drives Moana, it drives the hero, that's why she got off the island, that's why she, you know, the lion on the sea, it calls me. This, yeah, that's right. And this, this narrative also, it drives the hero and it defeats the villain. Okay, listen to this. At the beginning of the movie, crazy old grandma is down there by the water. You know, she's doing her thing. And she tells Moana, you may hear a voice inside. And if the voice starts to whisper to follow the farthest star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. Y'all catch that? If you hear a voice inside that tells you to follow the farthest star, Moana, star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. Okay, so Moana leaves the island. She runs into trouble. Halfway through the movie, she's on a little raft in the middle of the night, and the ghost of Grandma reappears, and uh, Grandma starts singing again. (laughs) And uh, so this is the turning point of the movie. Moana's down. And what revives Moana's narrative, what revives her story, is this line. Nothing on earth can silence the quiet voice still inside of you. Moana, listen. Do you know who you are? And she starts saying, who am I? I'm the daughter of the, you know, the chieftain or whatever. And the call isn't outside of, the call isn't out there, it's, it's inside me. So that identity narrative turns her life around. It revives her, her story. Y'all see that? Who are you? Oh yeah, I forgot who I am. And now everything changes. Okay, the climax of the movie. Teka is, you know, on fire, crawling through the water. The waters have parted. Where do you think they got that little plot element? Yeah, Exodus. The waters have parted. Moana is the modern day Moses you know, leading the, uh, the redemption move here. She's striding through the water. The wind's blowing her hair out. You know, everything's kind of in silence. And Teka is just like, ah. 
And does Moana pull out a sword and slay Teka? Does Moana harness the water and like, you know, shoot a jet stream at Teka to put out the fire? What does Moana do? She starts singing, only in Disney movies. <laughs> but she sings to Teka the identity narrative. And the identity narrative slays the bad guy. Listen to this. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are, who you truly are. And when Teka hears the identity narrative being sung through that, you know, void, Teka is subdued. This is the identity narrative from beginning through turning point, through resolution. Muan is telling us we just need to be true to who we really are and we will, you know, win the day. We will slay all the opposition. And if you're not true to who you really are, you will become your own Teka, a raging, flaming, you know, on fire, destructive bad guy, bad girl. So it turns out Teka isn't evil, she's just depressed. That's, that's really what's going on there. She's not a bad guy, right? She's not a bad guy. She just forgot who she was. Okay, so is everyone clued into the identity narrative? Is everyone seeing how our culture, I mean, you guys don't need me to convince you all that this is a massive cultural narrative. Okay, so let's talk about what do we mean by identifying as something, okay? This could be a number of different options. There's there's, uh, you can identify really as anything, any character, any identity you can buy into to live out a certain kind of story. So to identify as something, what do people mean when they say that? They mean they are enthroning one aspect of their being as the supreme expression of their self. Okay, so they're enthroning one aspect of their being as the supreme expression of their, of their self and as the justification of all their actions. This is what it means to identify as something. You have numerous different aspects of who you are, but what you identify as is you're taking one of those aspects, enthroning it as the ultimate expression, the supreme expression of yourself, and as the justification for all your actions. So that if, if, if people just understood, this is me. If people just understood, this is really me, this is the truest me, I've searched my heart, I've found what I, what I really feel most passionately about. If people understood that this is me, then they would understand why I live like I live. They would understand why I do what I do. It's the justification for all my actions. Everything makes sense and is justified because this is me. This is what I feel, and there should be no sort of outward constraint or opposition to my living out these, these feelings. Okay, so... Um, Let's see what time we're at here. Okay, so the Bible addresses this identity narrative head on. Okay, so there are four big problems with this cultural narrative. And the biggest verse on this is Jeremiah 17, 9. That verse says, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is incurable. Who can know it? Who can know it? So I didn't get a chance to read Hamlet here, but this, you know, this identity narrative's here in Hamlet. Uh, in, in that Shakespeare uh, play here, he tells them, this above all, be true to thine own self. This above all, to thine own self, be true. That's the identity narrative. The Bible basically completely says the opposite thing. The heart is deceitful above all things, and who can know it? 
You actually cannot know the depths of your own heart. So the Bible looks at this identity narrative with four big problems. Number one, finding your identity deep within yourself and your deepest desires will, will lead to an unstable existence, an unbearable existence, an unsatisfying existence, and ultimately, it's actually impossible to just look deep within and purely live out that self. We're going to look at each one of these very briefly. Number one, it's unstable. Your deepest feelings are often contradictory and change over time. So an identity source purely in your feelings is going to be unstable. You know, you may be this today, maybe that tomorrow. This may be you this year. That may be you next year. So it's, it's unstable to source it in your feelings. Number two, it's unbearable. It, produce, it places on you the unbearable pressure of achievement. Achievement for the sake of external affirmation. So actually, this is a little bit paradoxical because the identity narrative seems to require no sort of external affirmation. It seems to completely, to completely uh, you know, buck the entire thought of, I need somebody to affirm me. But the identity narrative, when it's actually played out, seeks external affirmation. And um, this produces anxiety. This produces a lot of anxiety, status anxiety. Think about it. If, you're in, if your identity is sourced in your looks, you know, you base your identity based on your physical appearance, then what happens when somebody looks better than you, right? All of a sudden, you feel a lot of competition, a lot of pressure to affirm that you are attractive, that you are beautiful, that you are, you know, whatever. If your identity is in success, in wealth, in your intelligence, what happens when you meet somebody who's uh, smarter, somebody who's more successful, somebody who's richer? That b produces an unbearable, uh, never-ending sense of competition and striving. Of course, social media completely uh, exacerbates that. It amplifies it. Hyper-competitive struggle for attention, likes, you know, that sort of thing. So ultimately, long-term, this is very unbearable to live like that. Number three, it's unsatisfying. We talked about Solomon in the last uh, the reading. Solomon is a great test case for the identity narrative because he had no constraints for his living out of his dreams. Think about it. He had all wisdom. Remember, he had that dream. God said, anything you ask, I'll give you. He asked for wisdom. So he had all wisdom. He had all wealth. He was the richest guy in the world at that time. And he had all power. He was the greatest nation on earth at that time. So there was literally nothing standing in his way from fulfilling his deepest dreams. All, all wisdom, all wealth, all power. And in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, he set his heart to systematically test out pleasure. And you can read it. It's really powerful. He said, I got everything I wanted. He, said, he literally says, everything my eye desired, I did not withhold for myself. And this is how he ends. He turns out and he says, he says, whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I did not keep my heart from any pleasure. Then I turned to all the works my hands had done. Indeed, all was vanity, a chasing after wind. For what will a man have with all his labor and with all the striving of his heart? For even at night, his heart does not rest. So Solomon had it all. He tried it all. I mean, you read that, he says he got all the... Anyways, I mean, it's really amazing. He, he said he tried out wine, he built houses, he planted vineyards, he made gardens, he made parks, he bought slaves, he got singers, he got silver or gold, and uh, he became greater than anyone else. And then at night, Solomon is lying there in bed, 
and his heart is still restless. So Solomon tested this to the limits and still was unsatisfied. Ultimately, though, it's impossible to purely source an identity only in your deepest desires. Why? Because we filter our deepest desires based on an interpretive moral grid that we receive from our culture. So actually, we think we're being true to ourselves, but, but really we're being true to the cultural version of ourselves, the version of ourselves that our culture affirms. And this changes throughout culture. And so it's, it's actually an illusion to say, I'm only basing this, this identity on just me, just my own desires, because the desires we express are based largely on what our culture dictates. So culture cultivates, culture cultivates. Culture's like the software. It, it's a program that's running on the hardware of humanity, and it's, 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 it's shaping that humanity, and it's dictating that humanity to perform certain um, functions and programs. So, okay, so does everyone kind of get this? Uh, these are the problems. The heart's uh, deceitful above all. You can't actually know it. It'll lead to an unstable, unbearable because of competition, unsatisfying. Ultimately, this is impossible. And here's the real danger on this. Okay, here's the real danger on this. The problem with this is culture is not neutral. Culture is not neutral, okay? So the, the, the grid that culture is laying down on your desire saying, live out this desire, but suppress this, de this desire, that, culture, that cultural shaping is not neutral. There's a mind behind the system. There's a mind behind the system that wants to shape humanity for a certain purpose. That mind behind the system is the strategy of Satan. He wants to shape us. He wants to re redefine us. And he is an evil author who wants to write you into a different story, okay? And so when we think, well, I'm just living out the true me, this is me, this is, this is who I really am, actually, you need, to, you need to check, is that version of you, the cultural shaping of you, based on a satanic system out to hook you into a different story, sell you a different identity, to write you into a different story. That story will pull you away from God's story, and eventually you'll, you'll be a completely different person living in a different story. Okay, so, so this is Satan's strategy right here. This is the mind behind the system. Cultural assimilation through the change of an identity. Cultural assimilation. This is always Satan's greatest strategy. And you see this in Daniel, you see this in Egypt. Uh, this is always what he wants to do. He wants to take God's people, bring them to a certain culture, have them drink down deeply all the values of that culture until they are indistinguishable from those people who are not God's people, okay? So we see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel is a youth. He's taken to Babylon captive with the rest of the Jews. And right away is the battle for identity. So in Daniel chapter 1, anybody remember what happens? Daniel chapter 1, what happens? What's that? Yeah, Daniel is brought with a bunch of the uh, most promising young people of the Jewish captives. And Daniel is not made a slave. Daniel is not humiliated. Daniel is not stripped of rights. Daniel is not, you know, made to do uh, 
anything horrible. Daniel is given the, the dream offer in all of Babylon. You can sit at the king's table. You can drink the king's, wi- king's wine. You can eat filet mignon with King Nebuchadnezzar every night. And we're going to teach you the greatest learning of the Babylonians. We're going to rename you, and we're going to make you someone great. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? What's going on here is Satan's strategy to culturally assimilate the brightest and best of God's people and rename them, change their diet, until they are Babylonian through and through. Of course, Daniel in chapter 1, it says he set his heart not to fall for that trap. So it was a matter of the heart. We know this strategy was so effective. We know this strategy was so effective God had told them going into Babylon that you're only going to be there for 70 years. That's basically one generation. So Daniel was alive when the Babylonian captivity ended. We know this strategy of cultural assimilation was so effective that when time came not to form a resistance, to overthrow the government, to cause a revolution, and to storm out of Babylon, no. Cyrus came liberated Babylon, in a sense, and said, all of the Jews can go back and rebuild the temple. Everyone is free to go. It literally says, whoever wants to go back can go back. The only problem was they had been assimilated into a new culture for 70 years, so thoroughly assimilated that when it was time to leave, no one wanted to leave. Of all the Jews that went to Babylon, 2% went back. And they thought, why would we go back? It's good in Babylon. We got a good. We got a good in Babylon. Why why would we go back? So you see, Satan's strategy is to assimilate us into the culture so thoroughly that when the greatest opportunity to participate in God's purpose in our lifetime is handed to us, we don't even have to fight for it. It's handed to us. If you want it, All you got to do is say, I want it, Lord, and I will rise up and go back and build the church for your purpose. No one's willing to go back. No one's willing to go back. So we need to be aware that our culture is shaping us. There are powerful forces out there shaping us, shaping our heart. Your heart is not unshapeable. Your heart is not immutable. Your heart is not impermeable. And if if our hearts are soaking in a certain cultural solution, a certain liquid, of the culture, the tide of this age, if our hearts are steeping in that, it's like they're being marinated. It's like marinated chicken. Those juices are getting in. It's going to cha- totally change the taste of that, okay? So we need, to, we need to be aware here. Romans 12, 2 is a great verse. I've got it right here for you guys. Do not be fashioned according to this age. Of course, this age, today in 2018, is the age of authenticity. Romans 12 is saying, do not be fashioned according to that but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And then 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, Demas has abandoned me, having loved the present age. So the danger here is Satan wants to show us the culture, immerse our hearts in cultural practices that are shaping us to the extent that we develop new loves. We've got no problem up here. I tell you, what are you living for? I'm living for the Lord's second coming. You know, tell me about this truth. I got it. You can quote that verse. You know the story here, but you've, you've imbibed a different story here. 
And so our desires have been taught us. We've been taught what to think up here, but our heart has been captured. It's been caught. You've been taught rightly, but you've been caught wrongly with a different love, different values, and you've bought into a different story. You love the age. You love what's going on, and you've been fashioned according to it. And ultimately, the danger here is like Demas, you abandon the people who are living out the story of God in your time. So we've got to, we've got to be aware of this, okay? So um, yeah, so we've got the age. The age is basically the present world that's in front of us. There's the world, that's a little bit abstract, that's just the whole thing. But the age is what's present, what's practical, what's you know, in our time period, okay? So basically, um, this is the danger. Satan is out to shape us. He's out to shape our hearts. And we need to realize that our hearts are not impermeable. If, we are, if we're soaking in that atmosphere, that environment, we need to be aware our hearts may be affected. And it's the heart that directs our lives. It's not the head. It's not what you know. It's what you love. So Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it, from your heart, flows out all of the issues of life. Everything about your life is streaming out of your heart. So Satan's not going to come in with a radical, you know, reprogramming agenda to try and just give you messages. He's going to tug on your heart, your loves, your affections. And if he can capture that, I love Babylon. I love it. I love, I love the, the knowledge. I love the architecture. The hanging gardens are there at Seventh Wonders of the World, you know. Eventually, your heart is caught, and you're caught for a different story. Okay, so let's go real quick to what does the Bible say about our identity? And here's where we kind of want to turn this identity narrative on its head. It's not totally wrong. It's just that who you really are is defined in the Bible. So you are an image bearer, Genesis 1.26. God has stamped his image upon you so that when others see you, they should see something of God. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a royal priest. You have been privileged to be in the closest contact with God in the highest service. Okay, You're a royal priest. And ultimately, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are in Christ. In Christ is your identity. We are in Christ Galatians 3 says, we have put on Christ. We put on Christ like clothing so that when others see us, they should see Christ. We're wearing Christ. We're bearing Christ. We're serving Christ. This is who we really are. The problem is there's two mirrors. There's two mirrors. We see our real identity in the word. We see our real, our real identity in the word. And then we leave the word and we forget who we really are and we stare into the mirror of the world and we begin to love a distorted image of ourselves. The world's like a carnival mirror. It's you. It's really you in that carnival mirror, but it's a distorted version of you. And the problem is you've been staring into that distortion of who you are for so long, you begin to love what you see. You begin to love what you see. So this is what James chapter 1, 23 and 24 says. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this one is like a man considering in a mirror the face he was born with. For he considers himself, 
and goes away and immediately forgets the kind of person he is. So this is the problem. You show up to church, you show up to Bible study, and the word is a mirror. Okay, You're looking at who you really are in God's eyes. Wow, I'm an image bearer. Wow, I'm a royal priest. Wow, I'm in Christ. Wow, that's me. James is saying the problem is you walk away from the mirror and you immediately forget who you really are. And all of a sudden you're in the world and you're looking at a different mirror. And it's a, it's a distorted version of who you really are. Okay, so we've got two great examples in the Bible of identity stories. Having to choose between which mirror image of ourselves do we, do we buy into, okay? So I've got them right there, so there's no guesswork. Who is it? Moses and... Okay, yeah, so these stories are identity stories. Think about it. Everyone's seen a movie about Moses or hopefully read the original story about Moses. Uh, but, but Moses, this is, this is why it's so powerful of a story. He's, he grows up in the palace. He is being trained to be Pharaoh. He is taught, again, all the wisdom of the Egyptians. But the person who raised him was Mama. Mama raised him, his real mama. Remember, she threw him down the river in the basket. Pharaoh's daughter saw him, drew him out. And eventually, this, through this sovereign event, she needed somebody to raise Moses. And Moses' own mom came into the palace and raised Moses. So the whole time, Moses is hearing two stories. You're the next Pharaoh. You're going to be the most powerful man in the world. Everything you want is at your fingertips. We're going to bring a, you know, build a massive pyramid for your death. You know, I don't know what he heard. But simultaneously, Mama was whispering in the ear, you're a Hebrew, you're a Hebrew, you're not Egyptian, you're not Egyptian. Your people are enslaved by the Egyptians. Your people have been slaves for 400 years. Don't buy in to the false appearance of Egypt. And at a certain point, Moses was right in the crux of having to make the choice, who am I really? Am I an Egyptian? Or am I a Hebrew? Which one did Moses choose? Listen to this. This is Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to have the temporary enjoyment of sin. Moses said, choosing persecution, choosing ill-treatment, choosing suffering, Choosing fleeing into the desert, choosing losing it all, all the power, all the position, all the status, all the money, choosing that is greater riches than the temporary enjoyment of sin in Egypt. He made a choice. He saw the riches of Christ with reproach, with suffering, and he said, I'm choosing my real identity in Christ with God's people. Esther is the exact same story. Esther becomes queen of, of Persia by winning a beauty contest. Did you know that? That's in the Bible. Again, Disney stealing their narratives from the Bible. Literally, there is a beauty pageant for all the people of the land. We're going to pick one lady. This night is going to be queen. It's going to be a beauty contest. Esther wins. Esther becomes queen. She's queen of Persia, but she's a Jew. She's not Persian. And the king of Persia, through uh, some manipulative, manipulative and uh, evil-intending advisors, 
decide on one day we're going to kill all the Jews in the land. Okay, so you're Queen Esther, a Jew, and you hear the plan. One day we're going to kill all the Jews in the land. Esther again is faced, just like Moses, with the dilemma, do I speak out and reveal my true identity at the risk of personal loss? Or do I just buy into this other story? Mordecai shows up in a room at night and says this, Mordecai's her cousin. Mordecai says, if you remain silent at this time, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It was God's sovereignty that you won that beauty contest to be queen of Persia, to be the means of deliverance for God's people. Who knows whether or not you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther said, go, assemble all the Jews and fast for me. Do not eat and drink for three days. I also will fast. And so will I go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Both Moses and Esther chose to identify with their identity in God's story, who they really were at the, at the risk of personal loss, and their choosing to choose that identity and live out that story has changed history. So for us, the, the, uh, the biblical imperative here today is put off the lie. Put off the lie and become who you already are. Isn't that amazing? Become who you already are. Become who you already are. Look at these verses here. Ephesians 4 says, put off and put on the new man. Put off and put on the new man. But Colossians says, you have put off. You've already done it. You have put off and you already have put on the new man. So the Bible is speaking from two different perspectives. One is, it's an imperative. You need to do this. One is indicative. You already have done this. We're, we're describing something that's already true about you. So what's up with that? This is the Bible's way of saying, you need to choose to become who you already are in Christ. And you can think about it like this. Think about uh, getting on a plane in LA right at the crack of dawn, right as the sun's coming up. And you jump on that jet and you fly rapidly west towards Japan. Get on the plane in LA, right at the crack of dawn. Sun hasn't even visibly shown up. It's just barely starting to change the color of the sky. You jump in that plane, you fly to Japan, and basically, you know, the sun's coming this way, you're going that way. So you can beat the sunrise and you can land in Japan right as the sun's coming up. But your body, your body, your internal clock, right now it's, it's 3 p.m. in L.A. But the sun is just coming up in Japan. This is how it is with us in Christ. In Christ, we are already living in the full reality of the day. The Bible uses this term, the day and the night. The night is far advanced to this age. The day has drawn near. But we are already living as in the day. We have already entered into this identity in Christ, and our body knows it. It's called jet lag, right? If for you it's 3 p.m., but you're, 
you're, you're waking up in Japan, you're landing in Japan at 6 a.m., but your internal clock is 3 p.m. in L.A., but you're in an entire different land just awaiting the sunrise. It's the same with us. Right now we're in the dark night of this age, but we've already had our dawning of the day. In Christ, we already who we are, we already are who we are in Christ. We just need to align our lives with our quote quote internal spiritual clock. We're living in the 3 p.m. of the kingdom. Even though the sun of the Lord's second coming hasn't come up in this age, we are who we are in Christ, but we need to choose to live it out. Okay, how do we do that? Let's end with three practical points. Number one, let's read all three of these words together. Our need, what is it? All right, word, community, witness. Nothing's going to be radically new here. You've heard this before, but attaching it to this thought of the age of authenticity, I think it's very powerful. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Okay, reading the word, you see the wondrous things of your identity in Christ, and you see the wondrous things of the story that God has written you into. You are a character of the greatest story on earth. God has decided to write you in as the author of salvation. And reading the word, you are reading the script of your life. You need to read it broadly so you are wowed with the story God has you in. And you need to read it deeply by praying yourself into the reality of the roles God has already written you into. When we read the Bible like this, we become who we already are in Christ. We're praying ourselves into the reality of those roles. Isn't that awesome? So when it's not just enough to show up, read the Bible here, read the Bible there. We need to be immersed in it. We need to be steeped in it. We need to read it broadly to get the full spectrum of the story. And we need to pray ourselves deeply into those roles until they become the reality in our lives. We need to be re-characterized. We need to be re-storied through the Bible. So awesome. So awesome. Okay, number two. Oh, I thought of a really great example of this with the word. Has anybody heard of method acting? Yeah, a lot of people are doing it these days. Method acting is an actor who never gets out of role while he's filming a movie. So there's been a couple of famous examples of this. Some people have, you know, almost literally gone crazy. Uh, there's some famous examples of people who, they basically, the whole time they're filming, which may be six months or something, maybe eight months, I don't know how long. If they're a psycho in the film, they live psychotically during life. Uh, I was reading about one actress. Uh, she was, well, I'll give you the guy version of it. There's this, uh, uh, there's this one movie, this guy, uh, he's poor, he's homeless, he's a vagabond, he's a piano player. The guy learns piano, you know, for months. He's literally learning how to play the piano. And then he sells his car. He sells a bunch of his stuff, and he moves to Europe to live as a vagabond. So that when he's playing the role in the movie, it's authentic. Okay, we need spiritual method acting. You need to read about your character in the Bible and never get out of that role. Don't just show up and read a few lines of the script. Immerse yourself into those roles. Never get out of character. And then you will begin to live out that reality by always staying in it. It's awesome. Okay, number two. Uh, we need to be in community. And the verse here talks about the family of God. So families are a place, 
Families are a place where uh, formative, you know, for formation happens. The formative power to the family unit, um, right? Families have values, traditions, stories, patterns. Uh, families have certain maybe meals that they always have at certain holidays. Um, so this is the formative power of community. And we're in the family of God. So we need to live in the family of God. Don't just come to a church meeting and then go. Don't just come to a prayer meeting and then go. You need to ask yourself, how much have I really begun to live in the family of God? If you're not doing that, you're probably not being shaped by the family values of God's family. So um, hopefully in college, this is, this is what you guys are doing. You have a home that you're getting built into. That will be a powerful, formative experience to shape you into your identity in Christ. And it will mainly happen by seeing the patterns of those people in the family. You will be basically part of the family. This happened to me in college. I had a key to the house of the, this family I was you know, always at. He was an architectural engineer. I was. He was a drummer. I was. He was a coffee drinker. I was. And I was just over there all the time, so often that they eventually said, you probably need a key to the house, and you don't need to call when you come over. So that had a profound shaping effect on me. Okay, the third one is witness, all right? Witness. Oh, I love this verse, Hebrews 11. It's talking about Abraham leaving to go to the good land, the land that God showed him. And it says, uh, they long after a better country, and they, they had opportunity to return to their former country, but they lived as strangers and sojourners. And then it says this. Um, let me just pull it up real quick. I've only got the snippet of a phrase here. It says, These all died in faith, not receiving the promises, but seeing them from afar and joyfully greeting them and confessing that they were strangers, strangers and sojourners on the earth. For those who say such things, those who say such things make it manifest that they seek after a country of their own. You have to ultimately say something if you want your Christian identity to solidify. It's not enough just to be reading a little bit of the Word. It's not enough just to be in a family, the family of God. You're not just in church meetings, you're in the family. Ultimately, you have to say something. And when you say something, your Christian identity will be radically solidified. And the example I had was like welding and quenching iron. You stick that sword into the fire, that's like the word. We want to leave that sword in the fire long, long term. That fire eventually burns so hot, the fire gets into the, the metal. The fire gets into the metal. That happens in the word. When you're with the family, that's the shaping. You're being reshaped in the family of God with new values, new, new practices, new ways of life, a new lifestyle. It's like the hammering of the family of God, reshaping your identity. And then when you say something to one of your friends, one of your classmates, that's like plunging that red-hot, reshaped iron sword into the cold waters of, of saying something about Christ in public. That red-hot, reshaped sword is quenched, and that new shape is locked in. It's locked in. So when you say something in public, you're 
identity in Christ will be radically solidified. This happened to me. I got baptized in college. I was in my classical mythology class, you know. I always sat by this one girl. And, uh, of course, the question always comes, hey, what would you do this weekend, you know? And uh, the Lord was saying, you need to say what happened this weekend. It was right after a college conference. And I was like, this is going to be pretty awkward. <laughs> but I said, you know, uh, something really, really, really crazy happened to me this weekend. I got baptized. I got baptized. And uh, it, was, it was a big thing for me. And I just, I just want to let you know. And uh, that, th- situations like that, it's like quenching the sword and it locks in. It locks in that identity. You say something to somebody about being a Christian, about following Jesus, about reading the Bible, about going to church, you think your identity is going to be able to be shaped by the world and those friends and those influences? It's going to be obvious. You're different. You're living in a different story. And we should be proud to be living in that different story. We should overcome the shame of confessing the name of Jesus to our classmates. That confession, that witness will make it manifest that you seek a country of your own. That is the country, is the destination of the the story of God that we all have been invited to be a participant in. So this was uh, really fast. I know we were kind of flying through a lot of this, but uh, hopefully you guys um, kind of leave this talk with a sense of the the narrative our culture is mainly telling you. Look deep down into your heart, live out whatever you feel without constraint or you know, opposition. Just be true to who you are, everything's gonna be fine. We wanna flip that on its head and say, in a sense, yes, because who you really are is you are a member of the body of Christ. You're a son of God, you're bearing God's image, and you are a royal priest. And we need to live that out through the word, through the family of God, and through speaking speaking through our mouth. Okay, so that's it, guys. Um, Do you have an announcement? All right, thanks for coming, guys.